I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. A panel conversation with distinguished economic journalists has become a regular feature of Econofact Chats, and it's one that I particularly enjoy hosting. I'm very pleased to welcome back Benjamin Applebaum of the New York Times, Scott Horsley of NPR, Greg Ipp of the Wall Street Journal, and Heather Long of the Washington Post. We last spoke in March, and while some issues have changed over the last three months, many remain prominently in the news. And I'm very interested in hearing about these experts' views on how things have evolved. Benjamin, Scott, Greg, and Heather, welcome once more to Econofact Chats. Thanks Great for having us. Back, so the biggest economic news for the United States over the past month or two has been the fight over raising the debt limit. We came right up to the edge of default. Many people predicted catastrophic consequences if, in fact, the debt ceiling was not raised. But an agreement was forged and the government will be able to pay for its bills that it already authorized. Is this any way to run a country? Especially since, as you wrote in a recent article, Greg, the debt ceiling deal doesn't deal with debt. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that what we've seen over the last 30 years is that um, even as the fights over the budget have gotten nastier and more um, sort of brinksmanship-like, the the, um, the stakes, you know, the things they're fighting over have gotten smaller and smaller. Uh, you've seen that, first of all, Democrats and then Republicans took the big entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare off the table. They will not be negotiated with. Republicans, of course, uh, refused to consider raising taxes. And as a result, these fights over the budget boil down to like really what is just one sixth of the budget, the so-called domestic spending that does not go towards defense. And that's one of the reasons why the deal in the end ended up being relatively small. It only uh, trims a few hundred billion dollars over the next uh, couple of years, and it makes only the smallest dent in deficits and debt over the next 15, uh, 10 to 15 years. Yeah, we have a very nice recent Econofact memo by Melissa Kearney and Luke Pardue that talk about how big is the discretionary spending that they can work on. And as you say, Greg, it's very small. Heather? Yeah, I thought that was one of the most disappointing parts of this deal is there wasn't even an attempt to put together. Usually like what you saw in 2011 is there'd be an attempt to have some sort of commission. Now that doesn't mean it's a binding commission, but at least you'd sort of attempt to bring together Republicans and Democrats going forward to try to have some sort of grander budget deal or reexamination. And they didn't even attempt that in this potential, this latest deal. Um, I think the other thing that really starts to feel different this time around is the global implications of what happened. Um, you know, back in 2011, the United States economy was in many ways one of the strongest places still in the world coming out of the Great Recession. A lot of investment was still flowing here because so much of the rest of the world looked very, very weak. Uh, it's a really different game now. 
And you can see other countries, China in particular, actively using this to undermine the United States, to undermine U.S. leadership. And no, we're not going to lose the dollar as the reserve currency tomorrow. But, uh, you know, it's becoming a pattern and it's far too easy for even our allies to question whether they want to continue with the United States as such a linchpin in the global financial uh, space going forward when we are going to almost certainly continue to have these manufactured crises with the debt limit. And as Greg said, it's not even solving our actual fiscal challenges going forward. Yeah, I mean, the Fitch bond rating agency left their negative credit watch uh, warning on on U.S. debt, e- even though we did manage to avoid a default this time. They, they said, look, it's it's become this pattern for 15 years. We've had steadily worsening governance. And Fitch is not the only one taking note of that. Our, our allies and our competitors around the world can pay attention as well. Benjamin? I have a slightly different view of this. It seems to me that the 2011 crisis was a crisis because it was something new and we didn't know what the rules were and we didn't know how it was going to play out. It played out fairly badly, although it certainly could have been worse. But as Scott says, we've been doing this for, you know, the intervening decade uh, and there are rules now. uh, And this process played out more or less exactly in the way that I would have predicted right down to the timing. Nothing special about my predictions. I think lots of people foresaw pretty much how this would play out. Uh, and so that sense of crisis, I think, has has faded somewhat. The, the stakes are obviously enormously high. Uh, a bad ending would be a truly bad ending. Uh, but I'm not sure that the debt ceiling as such is the fearsome thing that it was uh, back in, in 2011. It seems to me that markets have made their peace with it. Uh, While it certainly is a talking point in foreign capitals, I'm not sure that anybody is particularly convinced that this is the reason to uh, hold the United States in lower regard. Uh, My big concern about it is that it has become uh, another distraction from the issues we actually need to deal with, Uh, not that it itself uh, is, is such a terrible and intractable thing. I'll just jump in a little bit there really quickly. While you're probably describing the base case scenario, what also was different this time is some fairly credible people, you know, particularly on the Democratic side, truly talked about the ser- seriously invoking the 14th Amendment. And on the extreme fringe of the right, you had a number of people seriously talking about default would be their preferable option here. And that seems a little bit different from what we saw play out for the past 10 years. And it it does seem like the edge case, while still hard to foresee, is rising. And that, to me, does make this a little bit different going forward. Do you think that just reflects the greater polarization now, Heather? Well, even if it does, it's still a risk, a greater risk factor going forward than what we saw before. One of the issues is how it was resolved and what was cut and what wasn't changed. And Benjamin, you had an article about um, taxing and taxing was never really on the table. In fact, one thing that happened was that there was a cut in the funding to the IRS to try to avoid tax avoidance and tax evasion. So is this going to be a problem that taxes are off the table and even trying to have the IRS work more efficiently and more effectively 
is this something that's going to be plaguing our fiscal landscape going forward? I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's pretty clear, at least from where I sit, that, uh, you know, we have uh, a level of debt that is imposing growing costs on our economy, especially just in the very simple form of a larger share of federal revenue goes to interest payments. And there are some really good reasons to want to address that. And there's two ways to address that. One is by reducing spending uh, and the other is by increasing revenue. Uh, and the problem with the debt ceiling is that structurally it's a negotiation between uh, Republicans who are threatening to default and Democrats who are trying to convince them not to. And the only language the Republicans are willing to speak is the language of spending cuts. And so we get deals that solely focus on spending cuts. And as uh, Greg and others have noted, only spending cuts in a very small part of the federal budget. Uh, and we have lost any capacity to have sort of a comprehensive discussion about the totality of uh, our fiscal policy, which would necessarily include the revenue side of the equation. Uh, and until we gain some capacity to have that broader discussion, we're not really going to be making any headway uh, on the underlying issue of the national debt. Greg? Yeah, and I, th I think that we've gotten a little bit complacent about the consequences of these things because we've allowed the debt to basically triple from 35 to 40% of GDP to around 100% of GDP. And nothing terrible has happened. But the reason nothing terrible has happened is because while debt was rising, interest rates were falling. They were zero or negative when you adjust them for inflation for a lot of the last, de uh, last decade. And that, in fact, you know, reflected the unusual circumstances of the global financial crisis from a decade ago. We've seen inflation and interest rates go up a lot in the, in the last year. And I don't think it would be a good bet to think that the low real rates of the last de decade are going to be replicated. And that's a case that that spills real trouble for the United States. We're now entering the coming period with a structurally very high deficit on the order of five to six percent of GDP. That is the largest of all advanced economies, I think, with only the exception of Belgium. And we can do it in some sense because we're the superpower. We have the largest economy. The treasury debt is the world's most you know, preferred safe asset. The dollar is a reserve currency. But in some sense, those good um, starting conditions have simply been used by American policymakers as uh, an excuse to give ourselves more rope to hang ourselves with. I think there's a real problem coming in, in coming years as the real cost of debt goes up if you know the current configuration of interest rates persists. And that puts more and more pressure on the fiscal situation. And it collides with a budget-making process that is utterly dysfunctional with like two parties completely dug in and with mutually exclusive priorities about how to fix this problem. Yeah, it's, at some point, we are going to have to talk about tax revenues. And at some point, we are going to have to talk about entitlement changes. Uh, left, left alone... Social Security's trust fund is going to be exhausted in about a decade, and and everyone who depends on those benefits is going to take a 23-25% haircut. Uh, Medicare's trust fund is going to be exhausted sooner than that, and providers are going to see their see their payments cut by 10 or 10, 11% unless, unless we do something. So it, it, inaction here is not an option. And I'll just yeah, note that this conversation may actually be forced upon us because, of course, the Trump tax cuts on the individual side expire in 2025. So whether anyone really wants to talk about taxes or not, that conversation is is coming quite quickly. But there's a tendency for these tax cuts to always be renewed. And, you know, that could happen again. In fact, sort of building on what Greg was saying, Moody's wrote earlier this year, that the United States has one of the least affordable debt burdens among advanced economies due to the weak growth in tax receipts and 
the rising interest burden on the debt. Benjamin? I just want to emphasize, you know, what we're talking about here when we talk about a growing portion of federal revenue going to interest payments is that the government is basically instead of collecting tax revenue from rich people, it is making interest payments to rich people. Uh, a growing share of federal revenue just goes straight out to the door into the pockets of the wealthy in order to sustain the borrowing necessary to cover everything else that the federal government does. And, and one of the fundamental problems, I think, in Washington is that you have Republicans who are uh, convinced that we have a debt problem because we're spending too much money and a Democratic Party that isn't even willing to concede that there is a debt problem, much of it. Uh, and so, you know, the people who would be advocating for tax revenue aren't even willing necessarily to concede the premise that we have a problem that needs to be solved. Uh, and that's that's why the train doesn't even get out of the station. Well, one of the sources of the government deficit over the last few years, as mentioned, has been the tax cuts. But then, of course, another one was the increase in government spending. And this was an effort to avoid a pandemic-induced recession, which was successful, but it also likely contributed to inflation, the inflation we're now experiencing. Greg, you recently wrote a research about a research paper by Ben Bernanke and Olivier Blanchard, two very prominent economists, that attempts to determine how much of our recent experience with inflation was due to supply disruptions caused by the pandemic, and how much was due to government spending and very accommodating monetary policy. Can you discuss what Bernanke and Blanchard concluded? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. And I think it's an important paper, partly because of the authorship. I think most uh, listeners have heard of Ben Bernanke. He was the Federal Reserve Chairman for around eight years, including around the global financial crisis. But before and since then, he was really one of the world's most respected monetary policy experts. Olivier Blanchard, also one of the world's most, I think, uh, quoted and cited uh, macroeconomists out there. So when these two basically get together and uh, come to an agreement, you really do want to sit up and pay attention. And what I think was intriguing about their study was that in some sense, they tackled the debate which has been going on for three years, which is, did the pandemic cause inflation or was it too much government stimulus? And effectively, they said both. They start out in the year like 2021, where as the economy reopens, you have a lot of demand that collides with very constrained supply, disrupted supply chains. You have this like big shift from services spending to goods spending and a boom in commodity prices driven by a variety of factors, including later on uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and so in some sense, that initial burst of inflation was not primarily a story about stimulus. But after a year or two, as you start to see the uh, labor market get very, very tight, what these authors find is that that stimulus with a bit of delayed reaction kept the inflation rate high. So the takeaway is that even if the high level of demand generated by all those trillions of dollars of COVID relief and zero interest rates wasn't the initial, in some sense, original sinner and the reason why we have an inflation rate of 5%, the getting the inflation rate back down does, in some sense, run right through uh, government demand policy. And there's really only two ways available to the government to do that. One is a significant tightening of fiscal policy by raising taxes or cutting spending. And as we were just talking about, Congress and the president more or less whiffed on that. And the other is for the Federal Reserve to um, engineer high interest rates and keep them there for a while. And I kind of think that's what we're looking at. Greg, one of the interesting things about your article was that you talked about the pandemic affecting things in a slightly more subtle way than Blanchard and Bernanke. Yeah, I think that um, 
they, for example, look at the excess of demand for labor over the supply by looking at something called the ratio of vacancies to unemployed people. Uh, and this has become a very popular way of understanding just how tight the labor market is. Um, but I think even that, in some sense, doesn't tell us how bad the pandemic was because the supply of people itself was deeply depressed by the uh, pandemic. We know that millions of people left the labor force. They, a lot of them retired early. A lot of them uh, got sick. A lot of them were concerned about getting sick or they had family obligations or they just decided they wanted to do something uh, different with their lives. And although there are mixed signals on the labor supply situation, it doesn't look to me like it's all the way back to normal. So in many ways, I think that the pandemic continues to have these unusual um, echo effects on the structure of the economy that are in some sense making it hard to grow as quickly as we'd like without generating all these um, repetitive inflation pressures. Scott? Yeah, I mean, it certainly looks as if the labor market is is remaining very tight, even even with the five five percentage point increase in interest rates over the last what, 15 months or so. Month after month, we keep thinking we're going to see a slowdown in hiring. We might see a, a, an uptick in, in the unemployment rate, uh, maybe, a, maybe a come down in those job openings. And, and the market just continues to defy us. You know, we, 339,000 new jobs added in, in May. Uh, the the unemployment rate did tick up a little bit, but but we continue to see uh, growth in in prime age workers. Um, it's it's just a it's a really the resilient job market's been a real stunner. And you mean what one aspect of sort of this ongoing question of what is driving inflation that I find really interesting, uh, and I think hasn't entirely been resolved yet is is the question of whether on the supply side of the equation companies are exercising pricing power uh, in ways that are are contributing to the persistence uh, of inflation, either because they anticipate that they need to stay out of the curve or because they're just profiteering. Um, that You hear more and more policymakers, uh, most, most recently Christine Lagarde, uh, discussing this as, as a contributing factor. It's something that uh, hasn't really been part of our uh, conversation about inflation in past cycles, uh, but is playing a more prominent role this time around. There is a very interesting paper from quite a while ago by John Taylor about overlapping contracts. And what he showed in that was that inflation could persist much longer than even the longest contract if these contracts are overlapping. And recently, uh, Yvonne Wernin at MIT used that framework to think about how there might be a persistence in inflation if people, are, if firms are just trying to keep up and wages are just trying to keep up because of this overlapping of contracts. But as you say, Benjamin, I think it's still unresolved. Another thing that's unresolved is what should the inflation target be? This week, the Federal Reserve is meeting and there's, you know, there could be a pause in the raising of rates or could be an increase, but people talk about coming back to the 2% target. There's nothing magical about 2%, but it's been something that we've focused on for a while. Do you think the 2% target is something that we should reevaluate or maybe even abandon at this point? Would the cost of getting back to it be too high? Well, uh, whatever I think, uh, Jerome Powell doesn't think we should uh, get, get rid of the 2% 2% inflation target. They're not even talking about talking about changing the target, at least not while the game is, is, is underway. Um, I think, I think the fed is, is very committed to, uh, keeping rates elevated until they get to that, 2% 
two percent target, um, or at least until they're well on a well on the path to getting it back down to two percent. And um, I think they feel like their credibility is on the line here, and they they are are not going to change that at least during this cycle. I'll just say about that that it's been interesting. You know, Olivier Blanchard, who we touched on a moment ago, was very prominent uh, before this period in in arguing that the two percent target was too low and did not make sense, and that ideally. Uh, there would be a, a higher inflation target for monetary policy. Uh, in the current context, he has not uh, had the courage of his convictions. He has argued that the cost of uh, abandoning that current framework would be uh, too high. It, it seems to me that if there is ever a moment uh, when you might reach a different inflation target, it is surely right now. Uh, and so, you know, it, just, it makes me want was talking about before the crisis if he doesn't think this is the moment to do it now but it's symptomatic of the discourse in general which is that in this context people have suddenly gotten very nervous about the idea of aiming for anything other than uh that two percent target greg i agree with binya uh you know there was no particularly good reason why the target should be two percent three percent for a variety of reasons a much better target and if changing the target to 3% now instead of 2% saves us a lot of unemployment that really has no purpose, why not do it? And the strongest argument you would make against it is that if the Fed were to move to a 3% target now, the world would see that as a floor rather than um, a ceiling of its new target. I guess that's possible, but that's really in the hands of the Fed. If they are serious about a target, they will then then carry out the actions necessary to achieve it. But you know, I'm kind of with Binya on this one. Like If you, everybody agrees... A different target would be better. Why not do it now and save ourselves a lot of pain? In fact, the 2% target was not met for almost all the quarters in which it was in place. Inflation was persistently below 2%. So it's not so clear necessarily what information the target conveys. And yet it is something that, as mentioned, is uh, people are, policymakers are very reticent to give up on, perhaps because of concerns about inflation expectations. So what are your views about what the markets, what wage setters, what companies are thinking about inflation? From financial markets, we get one set of views. From surveys, we get another. What's the overall view that you think is relevant for thinking about what people are thinking about? Well, there's quite a few different ways of assessing people's expectations of inflation. The University of Michigan, the New York uh, Fed, both conduct surveys and they simply ask people, what inflation rate do you expect over the next year, the next three years, the next 10 years? And they come up with answers that are anywhere from, say, 4% over the next year to, say, more like 2.5% over the coming decade. You can also go into the financial markets and look at the way they're pricing things like regular bonds versus inflation-protected bonds. And there you'll come up with an answer that looks more like 2 to 2.5% 2 in the coming year and something similar over the next 10 years. So you could actually end up with quite a variety of uh, answers. I would say, though, at least, and I have to admit that this is almost as much of a gut feeling than an empirically observed, uh, arrives at observation. It feels to me that like people are starting to get more used to the idea of a, an inflation rate of 3 or 4%. If you look at surveys and you ask people, what do you think your earnings growth will be? They're definitely looking at a higher number than they did five or six years ago. Um, you know, we talk about whether corporations are exercising pricing power. Well, it's kind of a delicate dance exactly how a company goes around price, raising prices. Uh, in practice, what they often do is they look around and see what their competitors are doing. And it's a little bit like um, everybody standing up in the stadium at once, right? If you all stand up in the stadium at once, nobody ends up seeing any further. 
And if the, all the corporations are essentially looking at each other, raising prices, they're saying, well, if they're raising their prices, I better raise mine. Um, and if they're not raising their prices, I won't raise mine. So what the, the sort of the sense I get from what's going on here is that there does feel like there's a psychological shift going on now towards a higher inflation rate. That I guess, uh, metaphor that you use, Greg, I remember that from the 1970s when I was first studying economics, talking about the inflation of the 70s and people needing to stand up to see or, you know, the um, analogy is firms having to set prices just to keep up. And so it's interesting that that's now reemerged some 50 years later. There's one big difference from the 70s that I think should be emphasized, which is that at that time, a significant portion of private market labor contracts were negotiated collectively. And so you could, uh, in essence, determine for a large group of workers that they wanted whatever that raise figure was for the next, you know, three, four, five years and and write a contract that contained it and lock in, uh, you know, uh, those raises uh, and drive inflation uh, higher uh, in that way. Uh, we now have you know, a very small share of the market whose labor contracts are negotiated collectively. Uh, and so there's a lot more room for employers to, you know, back out of a pattern of raises if inflation does abate. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I agree with Greg that inflation is culturally determined to some extent. Uh, I, I think that to me, it's less clear that we've actually shifted our paradigm. Uh, and I wonder whether we might not just snap back to where we were before as these pressures abate. Yeah, another key question is just how long the Fed will be comfortable with giving inflation time to come down to whatever target, whether it's two or three or whatever they ultimately decide to get to. I mean, it's pretty clear that we seem to be stuck at the moment or plateauing a bit in this four to 4.5 range, um, which isn't terrible, but really is pretty far from 2%. And, you know, wages do seem to be adjusting down a little bit and are a little bit below that level. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. It's a really hard call. How how hard do you hit the hammer going forward, you know, to get to get it from four towards more like three? And I think that's going to be one of the key key calls for this Fed heading in you know, to later this year. Certainly, we all hope there'll be some magical <laughs> Uh, you know, disinflation happening, but it um, right now we we do seem pretty stuck. I mean, th thus far, the process of getting from peak inflation last summer up north of nine percent down to where it is now has been relatively painless in terms of you know the labor market. Even even construction, uh, which is usually pretty sensitive to higher interest rates, was adding jobs last month. But the getting from where we are now to two percent could be could be a lot more painful, and that could that could make that that choice of the Fed a lot more more challenging. Some of that reduction has been in headlining uh, more than core inflation because of the prices of energy coming down. How important do you think the price of energy, the price of food, these sort of more volatile parts of inflation are and will be for determining what happens over the next year or so? And I realize I'm asking you to make predictions, which is unfair, but I'm asking. Well, certainly psychologically, people's attitudes about inflation are heavily determined by historically gasoline prices, uh, almost in isolation. I mean, people's outsized uh, views on gas prices is is well known. And in this cycle, their their reaction to food prices has been has been uh, pronounced as well. I mean, I, I, I certainly notice it every week when I go to the grocery store. Um, uh, 
so if, if you could, can get a break on gas and groceries, I think that that does a lot to keep people's inflation expectations in check. I think, too, one of some of the hardest ones to read are what's going on with the rent prices, which is obviously such a big part of, of CPI measure. Um, you know, a lot of these private sector indexes would indicate that we've kind of passed the peak of the rent and yet it's still going up in CPI. And so trying to understand, you're almost trying to game the statistic more than where we actually are um, in the rent cycle. Um, but to me, the more, fa more fascinating one and probably more significant one is just, you know, one of the biggest booms has been vacation, this revenge spending. You know, people want to get out after the COVID years and they're just willing to pay anything to get out of their homes. Um, and I, I think when does that stop? You know, you sit here and you look and you see the excess savings has really come down, including for the middle class. Um, you know, you see that the prices and a lot of these travel sectors are still pretty high, if not rising, and yet people continue to book. And, and there's sort of a mathematical reality where, where that doesn't seem like it can just keep escalating forever. And so, I don't know, I keep wondering in my head, you know, do you get to the end of the summer and then people pull back? I mean, there just sort of has to be a, a, a point where where this begins to subside. Oh, after Labor Day, there'll be a collapse in uh, in the price of airline tickets and hotels and things like that, which could you know be very helpful, I guess. Except for those of us yep. who already like uh, <laughs> our travel and can't get a refund. This is the winter is coming theory of inflation. Um, <laughs> but I, I would I would differentiate between the politics of inflation and the economics of inflation. I think you know. When we talk about food and energy prices, you know, when the Fed looks at inflation, it, it strips out food and energy prices, not because it doesn't think they're important, but because it doesn't think they're predictive. Uh, and there's a lot of very good data uh, about that. And so, you know, I, I don't think those prices matter very much for the trajectory of, of where inflation is headed. Where they do matter is politically. Uh, high food and energy prices make inflation really salient and really problematic for the people who are in power. Uh, and, you know, when they go up, uh, the politicians feel the pain. Oh, I'd like to close then by following up on that point, Benjamin, and with all of you. As Scott was saying, people's views of inflation often move one for one with gas prices. People's views of how well the administration is doing often move one for one with gas prices as well. Um, President Biden has, you know, pretty low approval ratings given how strong the labor market is, how inflation has been coming down, and so on. So you're all involved, not just in economics, but the politics of economics as well, when you're thinking about these things. What are your views of either how the administration is doing or how people are perceiving how the administration is doing and how that might be discordant with actually what's going on? Well, there has been this this real disconnect between the incredibly strong job market that we've enjoyed pretty much throughout the Biden administration and the, the relatively high inflation. I guess you have to chalk up the the low grades that Biden gets on on the economy to the to the high inflation. Um, if the job market is goes south sometime next year, uh, as, as a lot of forecasters are projecting, that could be uh, disastrous for the president's reelection chances. I'll just chime in and be a little provocative. I think that maybe I think that um, 
probably, you know, Biden probably deserves a grade somewhere in the B to B plus range. You know, it, we have had an incredibly strong recovery and they learned, you have to give them credit that they learned the mistakes from coming out of the great financial crisis and largely did not make those mistakes again. The other thing that doesn't get talked about enough is, you know, he did get a big bipartisan infrastructure bill passed, which was badly needed investment and is certainly helping to keep uh, construction employment and others strong. They also, um, you know, obviously they got through the debt limit deal, uh, you know, but they also are doing this massive industrial policy on a bipartisan basis, which probably doesn't get nearly enough press as it deserves, but almost every European head of state who's come to see the Washington Post editorial board in the last six months, this is the one issue they want to talk to us about. They want to talk about industrial policy. They, they want in on it. <laughs> they want, you know, this, in, in hindsight, this could make or break a lot of the United States uh, going forward and for decades to come. You know, are we going to be dominant in the battery space and the chip space? What does this mean? Are we just selling ourselves with higher costs? Um, it was interesting. Somebody from the White House was telling me the other day, you wouldn't believe the number of lawmakers, including Republican lawmakers, you know, who are constantly looking for cuts, who are calling the White House, begging for one of these chips centers to be built in their home district right now, because, you know, this is a massive reshaping potentially of the U.S. economy and how the U.S., you know, of the global economy. And so, you know, I think to some extent we all get cut you know, a little bit too caught up in what the Federal Reserve is going to sneeze at the next meeting. And there's some really big, you know, bigger factors and forces at play right now that, um, you know, that we're maybe not talking and, and thinking enough about. And I will just make one last note that if you are a black worker in the United States, this is the first time that this labor market has actually felt like it operates in a normal capacity. This is the first time, not only is black unemployment at all, you know, record lows, but you are seeing a situation where black workers with college degrees, whether associate or bachelors, are finally getting hired at equivalent rates to white workers with bachelor's degrees and college degrees. Whereas if we were recording this podcast only a few years ago, we would be lamenting how black educated black workers aren't even getting hired as much, you know, as white workers with high school or lack of a high school education. And so I think we also have to keep that stuff in mind. Not only is it a low unemployment rate, but we are finally seeing a more broad based opportunities for a lot of Americans who for too long have been undervalued in this country. It's actually a point that in 2020, the Fed was talking about of keeping the economy running hot to help historically disadvantaged groups. And so maybe you know we're seeing some of that now. But going back to industrial policy, Greg, do you have any comments on that? I think the Biden administration has correctly said that, look, there are certain things that the private market simply do not take into account. And there's a legitimate case for the federal government to put its thumb on the scale. One is uh, climate change, right? That's an externality. And so subsidizing electric vehicles in some sense, you know, makes good logical economic sense. And so if that means that we build more uh, electric vehicle factories, so much the better. Another is we should not be depending on China or Taiwan and South Korea, all of which are in um, geopolitically dangerous places for semiconductors, which are absolutely critical to a variety of military and civilian applications. So there again, I think a lot of folks, including people sort of more the center of the political spectrum would agree, this is a place for industrial policy. I suppose what troubles me a little bit about the Biden administration's approach is that they 
they see market failures everywhere, and there's no limiting principle on where they think the government should intervene. The president, in his State of the Union address, says he wants all American he wants American infrastructure only built with American lumber and drywall. I'm not aware of the strategic case for having all drywall made in the United States. His aides tried to persuade him to drop tariffs on some relatively anodyne Chinese products like underwear and bicycles. He vetoed that. Again, not aware of the national security case for making underwear in the United States. Um, there are uh, congressmen out there who want a chips for steel, a chips for aluminum, a chips for you name it, chips for pharmaceuticals. And we're in a situation right now, as we we're talking about earlier, where we're already having trouble finding the workers and the capacity to make the products that we want right now, never mind to remake all the products that we now import. So I do worry a little bit. This is an administration that has a little bit of trouble even learning the recent lessons of history. They came in in 2021. They thought we had a demand problem. They piled two trillions of dollars of stimulus into an economy that actually had a supply problem. And the result was inflation. I think that you can sort of like cut them a break because nobody anticipated that supply disruptions would be as severe and as likely to amplify inflation pressures. But come on, folks, it's two years later now. I think they need to start understanding that the reason economics talks about um, maximizing returns on capital and labor is because there's only so much capital and labor to go around. And you can't just wave your wand and say, we're going to like build all the stuff we want with unlimited money. You know, the production possibility frontier is one of the first things you'll learn in a principles of economics course. Benjamin? Yeah, you know, I think the question about how we grade Biden, there's a tendency, an understandable tendency to grade presidents based on how the economy is doing right now. Uh, but the truth is that by far the more important question is what will be the long term effects of the Biden administration's economic policies? Because as my fellow panelists have noted, They've launched quite a paradigm shift in American economic policy. They are doing things very differently than prior administrations and in a big way, uh, you know, restricting trade, uh, investing in industry, uh, you know, trying to push manufacturing here in the United States. This is a momentous shift. And I think the long term consequences are extremely uncertain. Uh, you know, I, I think that there are things they could be doing differently to increase their chances of success. If you don't have enough labor, you can encourage immigration. Uh, if you don't have enough capital, you can encourage, uh, you know, companies, you can help them to gain access to it. They're doing some of that. Uh, but, you know, that frontier can shift, basically. And, and the Biden administration, I think, might benefit from thinking a little bit more uh, holistically about how their policies fit against other uh, aspects of, of our current situation. Uh, but the bottom line is, this is a bet. It's a gamble. Uh, it's a gamble that in the long run, sort of Henry Ford's old insight that if your workers make more, they'll be able to afford Model Ts can be applied to the national economy uh, and and lift up workers in a way that hasn't happened in recent generations. And we're not going to know for some time how well it worked. Well, we're not going to know for some time, but I hope that well before that, we have another chance to discuss these issues because, as I said at the outset, this is one of my favorite kind of podcast that I host. And I always learn something. Sometimes I learn quite a bit and I always enjoy it very much. So thank you all for joining me today. And I really appreciate your taking the time and your insights. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. 
Thanks for listening.